0: All right. Welcome to uh, installment three of the M&M podcast. I'm Michael Gallagher. I'm Miles Blaney. And we're coming to you live from the House of Moray on the second floor of uh, Simon-Laurie, Simon-Laurie House, which is also uh, confusingly the fourth floor of St. John Land. So uh, the School of Education at the Center for Research in Digital Education at the University of Edinburgh. And today we're talking about the exciting world continuing the discussion about the exciting world of ai and education that's an important uh podcast today because we're going to go to the trouble of defining what we mean by ai it's a very confusing definition we're going to talk about the imaginaries of ed tech when it comes to ai these narratives that are largely espoused by uh, global ed tech companies and their ideas of what education is and we're going to talk a little bit about a recent publication from Neil Selwyn, uh, Monash, in Australia, uh, about the title of the book is Should Robots Replace Teachers? Provocative. Wow. Uh, so a quote I want to lead in with from that book is that something that is important to us, it's, it frames what we do, is this idea that any educational innovation involves likely reconfigurations of power, especially in terms of who gets to decide what teaching and learning is. So. That is something critical to the approaches that we're using here at the University of Edinburgh around these new technologies, these contentious technologies. And we hope that comes through in our discussion today. So I think we probably should lead in with AI definitions. What are we talking about when we talk about artificial intelligence? Artificial
1: intelligence. Yes. So I think it, if you look at the, if, you know, the term artificial intelligence, you could probably just split it into two really. So artificial being, it's not a human. It's, it's you know, it's, Artificial, digital, um, and then you could look at you know, the word intelligence and say that's an interesting term. And you know d- the definition of intelligence and in this space, so artificial intelligence, it, it's kind of mimicking what people are doing. I think that's what people are trying to to, to build it off to say we want to build something that will be like a human, think like a human, and then evolve even more than human. So I think. Uh, you know there's three kind of terms that are usually fielded around artificial intelligence and there's the artificial narrow intelligence or what people will call weak AI um, so they say that's like AI that's being programmed by humans for you know defined outcomes so uh, ask this do that so if you're like speaking to Alexa Alexa what's the weather like? Alexa will tell you what the weather like because it will know your location and mm. look for a keyword and it will be able to trigger that based on how it's been programmed already.
0: Um, that's that, probably can just to interrupt yeah. so narrow and artificial narrow intelligence or weak AI would probably be the most common it's one
1: a, yeah yeah and I think that's where we are right now because um, yeah and, and we're trying to explore that and I think it's um, I think I, I watched that lecture by somebody in MIT I think it's oh, I can't remember his name now Alex Friedman or something like that is he's a really uh, popular AI guy and he's like you know AI is like give um, yeah, this great eulogy AI is like a human walking into a dark room looking for the light bulb mm. and trying to figure it out. And and right now we're in this early stages of just feeling around the walls and, and, and trying to build things out that we think are helpful. And you know, uh, weak AI is useful. And it is useful. And I think it's something that we shouldn't say, just because the word weak's in there doesn't mean that it's it's not useful. You know, uh, automated cars
0: That's right. Are useful. That's right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So the weak uh, the, the term weak refers to the inte- to the capacity of the intelligence rather than its functionality. It's, right. it's learning. So yes. it,
1: it's, it's, you know, it's pr- it's told to learn, how to learn, what to learn from. You know, it's provided with data sets and it'll learn from that and it'll provide the outcomes from that as well. Hmm. And that's, um, it, it's kind of scary to think that's, that that is defined as weak because it's mega useful. That's right. Um, but then the next level above that, so artificial general intelligence and that's uh, general smartness and ability to learn and improve itself. And that's not by humans. So that's saying it's got, it's, you know, for the for weak AI, for the narrow intelligence, it's got data sets provided to it. And it can figure out those problems from those derived data sets. The general intelligence is maybe it doesn't have that data available, right. but it's clever enough to figure things out.
0: That's right. So can we, cons- would we consider machine learning to be somewhere in this space, or not? Oh
1: God, Michael, machine learning. So <laughs> machine learning is, machine learning is, and, and, and one thing I'll say as well, artificial intelligence is, is has, ma- has numerous parts and aspects of, of um, tools e- uh, of engineering and physics and all that kind of stuff involved with it, mathematics, and it's a bucket term for all those terms as well. They get put okay. in there. machine learning is in there. Machine learning is based on you know uh, machine learning can be used for a week and for for general intelligence as well and for all because it's 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 getting that data set and then analyzing that and coming out with an outcome. Mm. It's just the masses of amounts. And if if you think about it in in normal terms, so you imagine if we said to somebody here is hundreds and thousands of data points. We want you to analyze those, and this is a human, and we want you to get an outcome of that for predicting something, or tell us what's gonna be prediction. Mm. You know, a person might struggle with that. That's right. If you augment that person with a bit of AI, they can do that at speed, Mm. at scale, which is an important thing as well. without, well, I don't want to say without any kind of bias or anything like that, because <laughs> depending on the AI's program, it, it will have some kind of bias in it. Yes. But it's being able to do those things at speed. So, yeah, machine learning is is, is in there. It's another, it's just another thing that's part of this as well. The ability for the, the tech to do things at scale is massive.
0: Okay. So I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That narrow intelligence, we have general intelligence, and how about the, that last category?
1: Yeah, so, the, and I think... So w- one thing is general intelligence is something that is, is being strived to, you know, right now. And I think uh, people say that might be one or two breakthroughs that unlock general intelligence. And then there's super intelligence, which is um, the kind of unknown mm. where something is um, it's better than human intelligence. You know, and I, it's it, I think it's that dystopian view that we always jump to like Skynet.
0: Skynet referring, yeah, referring uh, Skynet referring to um, uh, the Terminator. The Terminator movies. thing. I we're
1: we're going to value it and say, "Well, hang Sorry. on, I'll I'll plan an outcome that's better for everybody." That's correct. And plan am, and execute one. Yeah, and I'm better than you. There yeah, right. you go. Boom. You're done. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's kind of like, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think these three terms are, are are great. You know, artificial general intelligence sounds like it's it's where I want to stop. Um, and it is something that will be you know, the narrow intelligence. is something I think it's mega useful to er- to a lot of people, to a lot of functionality, to to a lot of areas. I think it's it's great, and, and we shouldn't discount it. But it's that kind of you know we as humans want to strive to to learn, to push. To yet again, it's about you know not being happy what what we have right now. <laughs> how can we how can we get to Mars? How can we get past that? How can we do this? How we can figure everything out? Um. That's the way we are.
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm I'm satisfied with those those three definitions. I think there's dangers in each of the three. Oh yeah. Uh, there's complications in each of the three. Obviously, I think we can uh, easily imagine those, especially around the machine learning, the bits that aren't necessarily predefined, where there's some kind of autonomous action taking place, that the the AI is learning from a particular data set and employing that learning into another interaction. There are dangers there, largely around the data, uh, the data the tra- being being in, uh, interpreted.
1: Yeah, but it's also yeah that transparency, like you say. So how is it how is it being interpreted? Is that is that kind of it goes back to that that black box algorithm thing? Do you mm. know what I mean? Where if you're saying then okay, so the weak in, the weak AI, the narrow intelligence AI, we've defined that. Mm. We said here you go, here's this do this, um, you know. And, and it's maybe not that transparent for weak AI, but if you're thinking about the involvement of it, and, and if we don't see that, how it's learning, why it's learning, what it's doing from that data, then that's dangerous, because it's like, well, why is this outcome being produced at all? That's correct. Is this with all the facts? Is this what, you know, looking at that, someone else, some. it's like looking at a picture, hanging right. a music, and you know, in an art gallery, people can, 10 people will look at it and 10 people will get 10 different points of view of it potentially.
0: That's fun. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the black box bit of how the algorithms are determined and how the AI functions and how it responds are really the critical bit uh, in terms of, of diminishing any sort of trust in these systems, is that often we don't know how these outcomes were produced. We don't know what data it was pulling from, yeah. Uh, what in, what algorithmic kind of interpretation it had of that data and what it thought was appropriate uh, to respond with. I think all of those questions really diminished a potential trust. And
1: it's the people, right?
0: So right. if you
1: think about, like, even even stripping it back down to say, if you go to presentations and someone's got a pie chart up, and they say, oh, we, we asked people, and you're like, well, who did you ask? When did you ask them? Hmm. Are they related to the subject matter? Yeah. It's all that kind of stuff as I well. Agree. You're like... What, what you know, that data set, and even I think even the person asking the question, people creating the charts is their bias to say maybe they don't know that they have a bias towards something, and then maybe they want to have an outcome. That's correct, and that's it as well. And all these things apply to whether it's a human or whether it's a digital entity, which is artificial intelligence. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's it's, it's the same thing,
0: absolutely. They're not,
1: well, they're not perfect,
0: they're not perfect, yeah, and but they are, I think. I think some of the concern maybe with AI, I mean if I'm interpreting from my own position, is that it's acting in some ways autonomously. It's acting without r- restraint. Yeah. It's within parameters, it's within very strict pra- parameters generally. It's pulling from very strict data sets generally. Mm. But ultimately it's acting independently of of the human once the once the human has programmed that interaction. It's because
1: we think it's magic.
0: That's right.
1: And we think it's always right.
0: So it's potential for yeah, exactly. So it's potential for amplifying bias is is great it's massive it's great and I think there's a lot of examples these uh, you know these highly uh, uh, dysfunctional examples of
1: well the recruitment one recruitment like ones the Amazon or recruitment one which which is all like old it's all middle-aged white guys that mm. get recruited so that they, they, they uh, the tool that they use the algorithm that they used only look for middle-aged
0: white guys yes <laughs> which I think is particularly problematic and I think in a lot of this technology being pulled from particular tech Centers, yes, and this is this will come up again in these imaginary part when we talked about that. When we talk about that a little bit in a second, but it's pulling from particular centers of technological activity. Obviously, the Silicon Valley narrative, mm. uh, increasingly in other other centers as well. I think Beijing would certainly qualify as a net tech mm. uh, center now, with a particular set of beliefs that are incorporated algorithmically and interpreted upon them, the data. So all of that could happen, and you just imagine from a very functional use case if you were, the selection of data is critical mm-hmm. to its performance. So yeah. this idea that if you were to run a bot, strictly machine learning from say, uh, YouTube comments only. Oh Jesus. The, the dystopian bit of that becomes very pronounced very, very quickly. So it quickly, I mean, there are cases of it quickly learning to be, uh, respond in racist terms or to- Well, respond. that's
1: the Microsoft. Um, yes. Oh God, I can't remember the name of that bot. I think it was in a day it was tweeting out Porn and Nazi stuff.
0: That's correct. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's it, so it's learning from what it it feels to be get true. It's fed yeah. And that's, yeah.
1: People, and I think people wanted, and that was the point of why people attacked it to say this doesn't work. You have to rethink about this. You have to realize that these things are programmed, and if you know, we can break them. That's correct. And it, it, it's kind of you know, we're not even. So you're talking there about you know. Geographical factors as well, and social, cultural factors as well, coming into it. Do you know what I mean? With with all these places, it's it's crazy.
0: That's right. So if you had a broad enough data set and you were looking for diversity, and you were looking to maintain a degree of diversity, inclusivity in your education, uh, how do you teach the the AI to not treat uh, data anomalies, i.e. diversity, as outliers, as something to be normalized? Um, so there's yeah. a lot of tensions there.
1: Yeah, you have to write it on the
0: moon. Yes.
1: You have to have somebody born on the moon. Yes. You have to write it on the moon. Yes. And use all data sets from all over the world. That's right. <laughs> and so not be local.
0: It's problematic and I think there's a lot of research still needs to be done around those yeah. kinds of spaces. And I think this is also why we're doing it this way at our, at the University of Edinburgh here is that uh, we don't have the answers to these questions, oh, so God, no. we the answers are only going to come out through an engagement with the community. The community is the only only group that's going to be able to to walk us through this. And I think
1: yeah, and, and and without that community buying in without that kind of community foresight, because it, it's like, um, and now we're talking about an area where there's a, a you know, I'm going to say assemblage, mm. assemblage. I like, like it the last, last time. I like it. Uh, of of set of people within different parts of the institution that have to come together. Mm. Talk about this because it's not—it's not a technical solution. It is a technical solution, but it's—it's it's not just something like we can just introduce and say, "Here you go, use this, walk off, it's mm. done." That's right. Into the sunset, it's—you know, there's—we have to have investment in people to say what they want, what they need, and then that's thinking right. about all the other things that to go into as that's well. That's correct. Massive.
0: Yeah, that's correct. And I think that's something we'll return to at the end of this too—is how this how the types of collaborations that Miles and I have and what we represent in terms of our functions within the university are are critical. We can't, no individual party can do this alone. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but the second part of this is talking about the imaginaries. I think uh, this idea of what are the narratives being presented with AI in education uh, and how those are being advanced largely by the ed tech industry itself and how that might run a bit uh, counter to what how we see ourselves and the values we sort of place at the university of edinburgh on education on teaching and and, and learning and these types of things so importantly though i think it's to acknowledge that uh, this is not what we see here is not necessarily an ahistorical bit of activity i.e this has been going on for a long period of time and i'm returning to the sell one book here 2019 uh, and uh, quoting here, inventions such as the pressy testing machine of the 1920s were praised in their time for freeing teachers from the "quote-unquote" drudgery of the many administrative and organizational aspects of the job. While these digital machines usually relied on rudimentary analog mechanics, some of the issues raised by such attempts at educational automation hold true for today's AI-driven digital equivalents. And I think that quote does a good job of demonstrating that the narratives haven't largely changed uh, in terms of how ed tech is being presented. Uh, It's this idea of removing the drudgery administrative work, identifying the administrative bits of what the teaching function is already and allowing those to be automated. Uh, And that's still presented in terms of efficiency and time savings and cost savings
1: well that's if you think it like to an institution if you say we can if you buy this product we can see you and help you and do all this other, other stuff and you're like well bring that product then that's going to probably involve the academic or other people having to know what this product is and then using that product proactively as well and, and incorporating that into their teaching as well so that's that's massive i agree and that's like it's it's something that is kind of like it off, but so easy to use. And I, and I always kind of go back to, so like a learning management system or a virtual learning, or learning environment, people say, yeah, that's there. That's great. That means that expands teacher function because it makes everything online. That means that they can access the content wherever wherever they are in the world and you can teach all around the world. But the amount of time that academics have to spend on actually using it that's correct. and understanding it and curating it. That's correct. And shaping it the way they need it. It's massive.
0: I agree. And I think there's a, there's an important critical juncture there between what off-the-shelf technologies can do versus, um, versus uh, bespoke bits of activity. Uh, the, the bespoke activity necessary to make it meaningful in a, in a realistic context. So there's this process of taking this technology, deliberating upon it, and adapting it to actual use. Mm. that I think is often lost on both parties. Okay, both the teaching group, who may or may not understand the implications of this technology, and the vendor or the commercial aspect of this, who clearly have an uh, an un-nuanced view of what teaching is.
1: Yeah, and uh, and I think vendors will have a... So vendors will probably have a a use case that they like, and then they'll go off and they'll try and... And, and sell that do you know what I mean I think, and, and I think vendors aren't vendors aren't completely the, in the in the wrong here or, or the no
0: back. I wouldn't position them at all they're they're ascribing to yep. what has worked in other markets as people buy into it and say
1: yeah that's grand and maybe there needs to be a bigger conversation before things go in to say is this actually useful or not is that's this right. beneficial is there guidance around this what do we need to do to scaffold around this for adoption you know it, it's even just asking the community to say, is this worth it
0: is this worth it yeah
1: do you, do you see the value in yes. this? Because it's not like you go back to the cost efficiency kind of resource saving thing. Yes. That sounds great to probably someone at a very, very senior level.
0: It would. It would. And, and it's not necessarily, I mean, as a university or as a higher education institution, we shouldn't necessarily be running away from no. ideas of efficiency, but at the same time, too, understanding and critiquing the idea that that's being pitched as an instrumental thing. Yeah. Technology is only a tool that can improve a particular function or a particular outcome. It has a very unclear understanding of how that technology can rearrange uh, that quote I had earlier from Selwyn about this, these positions of power. Yeah. Like, who gets to decide what teaching and learning is ultimately? Yep. This is the question. So, I think it's imperfect idea of what teaching is, and we have an imperfect idea of how these technologies work. Yeah.
1: And it, it's, it, and with AI as well, because we're at this early stage of kind of, God, some, you know, I kind of I remember I wrote a blog about the AI oven, and I, it was one company that was like, we have created the first AI oven. Mm. And you're like, that's grand. And What's was, an AI oven? What's an AI <laughs> oven? And, and, and you and you read into it, and they're like, well, if you have if you want to cook a chicken, if you put a chicken in, and you just say to it, it will cook a chicken a certain way. And you're like, well, I don't want to put the chicken. I want you to put the chicken in, and then I want you to. It doesn't need chopped up. Say so have the stuff in the oven already. Mm. So it's like it's it's not really an AI oven at all. All that's it right. was is just it's just an oven with the recipes on the screen, that's right. and it would it's pre-programmed to say it's a roast chicken that's two kilograms. That's an hour and forty-five minutes. That's right. You know, don't kill me if I'm wrong with the timing. You know, that's my, right. my family's still alive from eating chicken for a cook that long. Um. So, but it's it's just a pre-programmed thing. But yeah. AI in front of it. Yeah. Makes people kind of go. <gasps>
0: that's correct. I think there's a there's a really good uh, segue into that oven idea and this cognitive bias that i'm going to put i'm going to paraphrase and do it poorly here but it's this idea of the law law of the instrument or law of the hammer it's this idea if all you have is a hammer everything's a nail so how the technology rearranges the social practice in yeah, which teaching yeah. takes place yeah and it has great power to do that unless you have a clear conception of what quote unquote good teaching is or a good student experience is and all these different things. So you have to explore that because it's not just a tool. So so can I ask then,
1: what is a good teaching experience and what is a good student experience?
0: Well, good question, I think we probably should, that's a big topic we should <laughs> save for another podcast that, too. Because it's going to be very, very, again, bespoke. That's um, it. Bespoke to A, the disciplinary practices, and that's something we're gonna talk about in one of these episodes yeah, is this yeah. idea of what, how all of this varies across disciplines. So what means something for for medicine or maths uh, might be radically different, and presumably would be for uh, philosophy, history, whatever whatever you have. So this is going to vary considerably.
1: And, and and bring it into the kind of other factors that can attribute the student experience as well. Yeah. So you know, um, millennials and Generation Z, whether they'll have different experiences and different expectations of of what to get out of that as well, yeah. and then. You know, geographical issues as well. Maybe they're here, maybe they're not here, and all that's that correct. kind of stuff. It's
0: it's 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 considerable topic, and I think that should be the focus of one, mm. but one so, of so, our episodes.
1: And that's it. And and, and us and, and companies that say vendors, I will say, there's a one, there's one thing
0: to help with all this. That's correct. It's like you, kind of crazy. That's correct. You know, but we should we should uh, uh, with the what we're doing, critiquing the environment in which we're all working. Mm we're not necessarily heaping all the all the uh, the blame onto vendors. They have their own needs, we oh, have yeah. our own needs. And we should say too, that a lot of this work is important because it's not necessarily, it's sort of surfacing some of the hidden beliefs in both parties, in, in all these parties. And I think it's, and this work has surfaced some of the beliefs at this university around what, or I'm sure it applies to most universities, is this idea of what good teaching is and how a lot of that is predicated on a particular model of instruction that that is not necessarily something everybody's had or shared. Yeah, uh, uh, I think it's important to to identify that what good teaching is or what good student experience is is largely predica- predicated on our own experiences as a student or as a teacher. So we're not very uh, prone to say that what I do as a teacher isn't good teaching. Why would I? Why would I still be doing it? Yeah. Uh, uh, so this idea that I find that some of the the advancement the ideas of what good teaching and good practice here is at the university is not something I necessarily experienced as a student. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going back to the idea of distance and uh, contact time and all these different things we're trying to define with this project is uh, this idea that uh, this is not always a very personal enterprise. This idea that personal instruction, if we're if we're sort of incorporating that into what good teaching is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not something uh, uniformly shared by all our students, uh, and that's something that we've been exploring with this as well. So it's certainly this work raises all those idiosyncratic bits that might exist in different disciplines and bound up in particular views of what teaching is. I think it's important that we recognize that the imaginaries of the ed tech industry and how it's not necessarily sitting with what we do, the ethos of HE, uh, they're imaginaries on our side as well. And Mm -hmm. I I think exploring those and really taking a more post-digital position where we say that the tech is not really the solution, what we're looking to do is to understand these practices, these teaching and student practices and how we redefine those Mm -hmm. equitably, inclusively, et cetera. That seems to be the bigger issue for me is that I think it's not necessarily the ed techs.
1: Ed like I, I
0: find them to be very, in some ways, predictable, and transparent, and that's that's almost welcome on some level because it's not as uh as opaque uh, well, as we might think it is,
1: yeah. And I think it's because it's so um because AI is relatively new within ed tech. Um, and you know, the only you think about it, only the last five years AI has been everywhere. You know, there's you know, five years ago, I think Alexa was launched, and look where it is now, that's it's evolved. Um, an AI and EdTech is, is something that is kind of it's been targeted towards kind of what I call the practical things as we talked about previously you know uh, Q&As or chatbots things like that you know Jill Watson being used in Georgia Tech's course which is IBM Watson's for answering general questions and then some kind of topic-based questions but being monitored heavily Yeah. Um, and uh, I think edtech vendors are, are starting off or, or established ones I haven't seen come off with something that is yeah we could do this it's all startups that are trying to explore this space that's and you know we're, we're meeting more and more startup companies that are interested in, in what we're discussing because they know themselves everything that we're highlighting is like yeah that's actually really valid there's mm. not one thing that we can do the will them all it's all kind of unique and and each institution will have a different goal as well. F E E E G will be very different. And then, you know, would, would AI ever be used in primary schools and infant schools and things like well, that? Well,
0: uh, it is in, in China currently. So, and there, we'll talk more about that in another episode. But there is grand, the quote unquote grand experiment in AI in China has been to roll out in particular uh, primary schools, secondary schools, all the way through It's formal education. So, um, this is ongoing. There's parts of me that actually, I think, I don't know what your position is as somebody who liaises with those vendors. It's like, part of me actually thinks that A, uh, when I'm feeling particularly pessimistic, A, this is gonna ramp up in a particular way Mm -hmm. in higher education that will ultimately be something we'll have to resist. Or B, uh, the market will lose interest at some point.
1: I, I I think in the short term, there's massive interest. And I think uh, and maybe splitting that kind of experience, and I think more and more in my head, it's like we the, the student experience, splitting that into like onboarding, um, which is, you know, getting people into the institution. There's tools out there right now that are heavily based, well, that, that are chatbot based, like Hub and GetGo Engaged, which specialize in um, getting people on campus, open days and then converting them into students. So, and then, what happens when they're going to come to the university? Is there are things that AI could help with that to make that experience better? And then when they're here for the teaching and learning and for the health and well-being and for support and general FAQs and all that kind of stuff, there's tons of things that I can slot into. I just don't think we've seen somebody that can come up and say, we'll have a tool that's easy to for you to manage, um, easy to adopt and is useful. I think that there's still this Skyfi fi thing that's going on. I agree.
0: I think ultimately, if we're just being predicted, if we're just guessing based on our past experiences mm. with edtech and sort of how we critique the space and what we think will possibly happen, I think one possible scenario, I think the product becomes not the oven, but ultimately the engine for creating bespoke bits, yeah, that, bespoke bots that essentially that serve as particular functions and that becomes the product. And everything else is a service and I, and, that's and I, bespoke to the experiences of the particular discipline or university. And
1: I, and I think, uh, to to me, right now, speaking to speaking to a couple of companies, that's the way they would probably have to approach it. Yes, because they realize that they can't build something and sell it on mass to everybody. Because right. it, it, there's certain aspects of this journey of the student journey that they could do that, but. There's certain aspects they just can't.
0: That's correct, and I think we're lucky. We're, we should mention too, at the University of Edinburgh, we're lucky. We're in a position that where we can say no. Like we have the so certain educational organizations and they systems no. will not be in a position no. to say no. No. So the tool, if they if if it's the edtech company selling on mass, mm-hmm. that largely means those educational practices are being contorted to fit the technology that's yeah. something to bear in mind here too that we're lucky we're in an advantageous position here is that we ultimately can resist this or redefine it in ways that are consistent with our values or our approaches yeah but a lot of the, uh, schools for example i work a good deal in uh, in the global south for example and a, a lot of uh, school systems university systems even national level schools of uh, systems of education would not be in a position to resist.
1: So is that like, they, they have this tool, they have to use it, that's it, get on That's with it. correct,
0: because they're contorting also to international, these global uh, policy pressures. For example, like PISA, uh, these these scores that rank school systems, who have predicated that technology is a means of achieving higher scores on these things. So it's all lining up in a between policy and technology acquisition in a mm-hmm. particular way uh, that are disadvantageous to particular systems. So we should bear that in mind as well. It's not an equitable space uh, educationally. And I think, but more importantly, are the relationships this foregrounds for a university, specifically for us, is that it really foregrounds the need for what Miles and I represent in this space. right? So the tech side versus the academic side, yeah. we have to be working in ten- uh, I don't, yeah there, We cannot work in isolation and figure this out. No, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And,
1: and to, be, to be honest with you, there's there's too many cases of you know um, technical s- solutions being put in place without that kind of consultation and without that wider conversation to figure things out and they're doomed to fail there might be a short-term success because people are like yay and then you start scratching the surface and you kind of go no that's not going to happen and um, and especially with this kind of space that is going to evolve I, I think it will evolve um, there needs to be this kind of connection between them there cannot be this split and this is and, and the way the te- technology is evolving this should be something that is permanently ongoing I agree because it has to and I think that's that's how we create success and it's being transparent and learning from everybody within like we've always said all along we don't have all the answers mm. Um, and so by actually having conversations and going out and speaking to other people that's how you gain that knowledge and expertise and, and the buy-in as well to see where yeah. people are like it's for us to say well maybe this isn't worth it
0: that's right. So I think, yeah, even buy-in, the idea of buy-in is, is an important one we should return to. Uh, and I think the only way for, to, to quote-unquote, buy-in would be uh, participatory, yeah. collaborative yeah. Uh, methods where ideas are being surfaced not necessarily by us, by the by the community itself. We all pay a lot of lip service to these things, um, but it's critical. It's critical specifically to this space. So th- the projects we're working on here with bonds or we're working on with other types of technologies, emerging technologies – we're all predicated on the belief that whatever we create will be for the university of edinburgh and by the university of edinburgh so yep. we're going to be authoring these collectively by our by the whims of our own community or by the ethos of our own community by the needs of our own
1: community yeah yeah, yeah. and and without that community input you know it would just be pointless yes i agree it'd just be absolutely yeah it's it's daft it's kind of like you know it's a bit like that design there's this design picture that always gets mooted about project management things about you ask for something, and it's like, I um, want a tire hanging from a tree, and there's like ten different versions of it. And you're like, well, you have to go out and speak to people to figure out what what they need, what's the appetite for it, and and see whether they can understand. And also, like, like we know ourselves, these terms, artificial intelligence, big data, learning analytics, adaptive learning, they conjure up so many different thoughts, and it's trying to maybe just define it in ourselves and simplify it for people they to be able to consume it and say, and make it real, and say, this is the use cases, this is what we can see, this is what we can do. And once people understand that, then they can kind of say, well, yeah, I can have a bit of ownership of that as That's well. That's correct. And I think it's critical, I think, for, for chatbots, you know, I've always said boring and fun. Yeah. And I'm not going to say boring anymore because I have to say practical. That's right. Um, <laughs> but I think it is, it's, it's uh, you know, weak AI, you know, narrow AI is kind of boring because it's pre-programmed and told what to do but it's
0: useful it's useful
1: and it's practical yes. so I will say practical from now on um, but from saying that language people can now buy into it and understand it that it's not like oh, what it's like the matrix you know you know like, it's not the matrix that's right it's a programmed
0: that's right thing of the matrix so I think it's an important point so a lot of this work we're doing is not is surfacing beliefs, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So I think an important output of, of the research is gonna be largely surfacing the beliefs at the university that exist around a whole variety of things. Number one, AI, bots, automation, all those things. And also, too, about what te- what good, again, what good teaching is, what good, le- what good yeah. student experience might be. Yeah. All of these things are gonna be surfaced in this work. Which seems to be a good place to stop. Yes. For this particular episode, we thank you for joining us and we'll be talking to you soon. Uh, to say goodbye, this is Michael Gallagher. And Miles Blaney. And we'll see you next time. Cheers.